Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, those producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, stunt coordinators. Yeah, you got a treat coming in a couple weeks here. Uh, composers, authors, and more. You name it, we talk to them. And a lot of talking, a lot of talking going to be going on today. But first, happy to say we're all here. We survived the hurricane. And just a little tidbit here, folks. Uh, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary people, already issued a formal announcement that Hurricane, I know Pam is, this perked Pam up sitting there uh, at the board. Uh, Hurricane is now already an official word in the English language. I know the look on Pam's face, if you could see it, people. Um, yes, I was utterly shocked. I was driving it, driving into the uh, studio and it was the, reported on KNX. So we now have a new word in the dictionary today. Hurricane. But, you know, hopefully everybody made it through with minimal damages and scathing, be it from the earthquake or the rains. Um, second tropical storm I've been through. So it was, uh, it was really interesting. It would have been less interesting if we hadn't had the earthquake in the middle of it and if the sump pumps the HOA had outside my... My unit actually worked, um, but that's a story in and of itself. But today, we're going to charge right ahead here. We've got two great filmmakers with us joining us. He's already on hold on the line. I'm going to bring him on in a second. Ray Spivey has a new film out, his third feature, Storage Locker, comic book. Comic books meet horror. And it's a doozy. Midpoint of the show, you're going to hear from writer-director Max Gold and his new film, Bell. It is a total reimagination of the story of Beauty and the Beast. And I can't wait to get into it with him uh, about that film because it's really something. But right now, Going to bring him on right now. Ray, is it Spivey or Spivy, Ray? It's Spivey. Well, welcome, Ray Spivey, to talk about storage lockers and comic books and horror and witches and all kinds of fun stuff. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. I didn't know what to expect with this film, uh, and I started watching it, and the minute... We have a comic book obsessed, late 20-something, maybe 30-something person. And I think, I can't, I can't even count the number of people I know that are comic book, rabid comic book <laughs> collectors. Like yeah. your lead character, Packer Stanley. Uh, right. And he is desperate for one comic. Most twenty-year-olds, twenty-year-olds are desperate for something, aren't they? I'll tell you, and he's desperate for a comic book, atomic fiction, 
with the the Crusader, the Spider, spelled with a Y, people. Yes. Um, right to to and, avoid any legal conflict with those Marvel guys. That's right, Marvel guys, DC guys, anybody. Uh, and you've done a great job with the whole film in that regard, Ray. I've got to commend you. Um, so, but I love this because poor Par- Packer, he is engaged to his lovely fiance Jenny, but he puts his comic books ahead of her repeatedly. Um, guys, I hope that you really pay attention when you see this movie and hear this interview. Um, that's not, it's not a good idea. Don't put the, don't put the comic books ahead of the girlfriend or the fiance or the wife. Of course, you're not going to have the wife if you've been putting the comic books ahead of the girlfriend or the fiance. Um, but what I love is that you take this to the nth degree, Ray, as to the lengths (laughs) that Packer will go to, to get his comic book. It includes jo- wanting to join a secret collector's society um, and then battling a demonic presence that is hidden in a facility below the storage facility that, he na- that now houses his beloved comic book collection. Wow, Ray. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, have you had psychiatric care or something before coming up with this idea? Uh, it's <laughs> well, fabulous. It, it kind of all, <laughs> all started with my years of putting things in storage lockers. And the idea is that you go in and they have this motion detector lights. And I just started thinking like, well, what if you're deep into one of these facilities and the lights never come on? And then kind of like, what could be back there? And and I do know a lot of uh, collectors who store their comics in those facilities, and uh, the story kind of came together. Yeah. I actually know a lot of collectors back east. Um, back east, I have a storage facility there. I also have one in Los Angeles. The one in Los Angeles, it's not climate-controlled. It, 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 it's not nothing. Um, but the one back east, it's all climate-controlled, and I think my brother has more or less taken it over putting you know, like our grandfather's stamp collection, things like that, that you really want to preserve. It's a, And I, I know there are some comic books in that storage facility for that very reason, because it is climate-controlled, humidity-controlled. And that's so important when you have these valuable comic book collections. So I love that authenticity right from the get-go um, when poor Packer is desperately trying to get a facility, a lot, a storage locker in the middle of the night, no less. Right. Um, right. Now, once you had that idea of what lies beyond the locker, what lies below the facility, we never see anything below them. They're all like above ground. So where did you build from that point on? Well, I, I wanted this facility at, at, in the movie to be owned by this, this family, a rather wealthy family, and in the movie represented by these two gorgeous but mysterious sisters. And I felt like there had to have been more to the build-out because of their wealth, uh, which may or may not still be existent. But uh, we were very fortunate to, to get the state of Texas's formal 
former bio waste disposal facility they're just about to demolish and you talk about no need for set design this was every bit as creepy in real life as you saw in the film well and i you know i had heard that yes you actually shot this in a, ha- a biohazard bio waste facility abandoned facility and i'm like all right that in and of itself <laughs> if i'm an actor about to step on stage I don't have to worry about bringing fear and trepidation into my performance because it's just going to be there the whole time wondering what am I going to what's going to infect me what am I going to die of from the biohazard that was housed exactly. here did they really clean it out you know they said they did of course it had been abandoned for a lot of years and they had cleaned it out I think what freaked out some of the actors of course it was dusty down there but we also ran a smoke machine, and I think before a couple of them found out it was a smoke machine, they, they were kind of getting a little uh, uh, freaked out. Well, of course, because it could just be really bad air just filled with COVID. Right. So, <laughs> you know, you could have added that as a layer too, Ray. Um, <laughs> well, we, were, we, we actually had the lead actor come down with COVID and a couple other people, but every time they came down with COVID— it was because they had gone out to dinner with friends or a roommate gave it to them. They were actually safer on the set because we were properly masked and every we used all sorts of uh, anti, uh, antiseptic uh, sprays and everything. But, yeah. And I'm sure, given the fact this was a former bio-waste facility, you might have even used a little bit extra of that biocide to uh, disinfect sure. things. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I kind of felt like I was scaring the actors enough, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> now you know you've got some really interesting characters here. You have the two sisters. Uh, Apollonia, is, played by Bobby Grace, is a strange sister to say the least. A witch and a scientist, and as a witch, yeah. she's trying to per- to perfect her craft, but she thinks she can perfect it through science, but also through crystals. So right. it, she's not she's not a she's not a very good witch. No, no, uh, she is not. So we have our sisters. Then we have the I don't know. Uh, do we call them patriarchs? George and Harry Fisk. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting. You've got Mike Gasway. He does. He plays both characters. That's right. And, I didn't have to pay him double, though. Thank God. Oh, well, I was going to ask you that, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't ask for it. Uh, but he does, an ama- <laughs> he does an amazing job. And then you have David Trevino playing Packer's best friend. And you've got Skeeta Jenkins as Digger, who basically he runs the storage facility. But he's also like the right-hand man to the sisters and to the family that owns the facility. Um, just so much fun. And, of course, you get a nice horror coup in here with Alan Danziger as the right. character of what, a, what an icon. I'll tell you, Texas, Texas Chainsaw. Um, how, did you, how, for, how did you get that fortunate to have Alan come on board? Friend of mine, well, actually, my mom was using a chiropractor, 
and uh, Dr. Kalinda, we actually used his chiropractic office uh, in the film, knew Alan. They'd worked together for years, and Alan couldn't, wanted to meet me, and I couldn't wait to put him in the film. He had not been in front of the camera since 1974 in the say. original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. A little nervous, but boy, he sure pulled it off. He really does. And I'm glad that you mentioned the chiropractic office because I can't recall when I've ever seen comic book dealer chiropractic office in the same place. Well, well you know, we're, we're always hurting for reasonable office space. And sometimes you just got to swerve your pan. And it turned out in this case, the, the chief chiropractor was also a good praiser of whether or not uh, there was a deal on the comics. Oh, my God. Now, I know, you know, and so we have Packer going on this mission, and he's jumping through hoops for the sisters because he's desperate to get into this secret collector society um, because he wants, this is his pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, is that first edition of Atomic Fiction. Uh, and we have a certain demonic presence that pops up and presents obstacles to him. We have collectors presenting obstacles to him. We have former fiance after she throws him out of the house presenting obstacles. We have BFF's girlfriend presenting obstacles. Poor Packer. It's, he's got it coming and going, but he is undeterred in his pursuit. And we do get to see this ver this atomic fiction comic and we get it because you have an incredible talent you created this atomic fiction comic book well thank you i i was more of a having to do it to make it kind of original yet paying homage to uh the original amazing fantasy 15 which the first appearance of Spider-Man, and one recently sold for $3.6 million in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So in, in our world, Atomic Fiction 15 is even more valuable as uh, witness to everything he's willing to go through. And, yeah, and I love, and we see it in plastic. When we see it, we see it encased, we see it in plastic. I love the cover of the comic. I think it's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. I really like that. And it, it looks, it has an old feel to it, yet it's pristine. And, yeah, I would even want that comic. I would not do what Packer is doing to get it. But, I mean, it's, and I think every comic book collector I know would want to have a comic like that. Now, how did you go about developing all of the antics and the... Uh, events that unfold in Storage Locker on Packer's pursuit to this comic. Because you keep it moving, you've got a lot of things happening with a lot of different people. Talk to me about creating that for the script, but also coming up with the visuals for that. Were you storyboarding, since we know you can draw, uh, were you were you storyboarding as you were writing? Talk to me about that marriage. 
I, I did write the script first, and then I storyboarded it out and, and actually kind of ran a test to see how it would work. Uh, so a lot of pre-production work went into this. The comics kind of popped up sometimes. Even after a couple of days of shooting, I knew that we'd have to show different books. I think there's about six versions of the spider uh, in there. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to show them why he's going to a comic book shop or whatever. Sometimes I'd be up late at night just drawing those in and coloring them in. The, the story itself, you know, the strength of this is our amazing actors. And I, I can just think about what they can do with certain situations, and it makes it so easy. You mentioned Mike Gasaway, Bobby Grace, Meredith Fowler, uh, our new kids that came on board, Hannah Hufford, who played Jenny, the fiancé, long-suffering. Uh, I loved uh, Jennifer Gunderson, who played Wendy, Chaz's separated, not separated <laughs> wife. Uh, she, she added some real spark to everything. But I, I really got to credit the cast. With them in mind, it made the writing so much easier. I, I mean, it, the whole thing, I mean, you've, but you've got a lot of elements here. How difficult, how challenging was it to make all of these elements gel once you started shooting and then got into the editing room? It actually was easier than I thought because we had, I planned a lot of this out in pre-production, so I had an idea. I think the toughest part was cutting some parts which is always the hardest because these are people you know and they spend a lot of time rehearsing and, and understanding the roles and did a great job. And so having to cut a scene for any editor, director, whatever, is, is always the toughest. But it was just great. Our locations were fantastic. Uh, you, you might remember the graveyard at the beginning. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. We, we, we built that out in the middle of the field. We're out wow. there at 2 o'clock in, in the morning, and there's a wolf howl you hear. That was a real wolf that was there, and you should have seen how big our eyes were. But uh, the sets, the actors just kind of made this thing a whole lot easier. Mm-hmm. No, your locations work perfectly for this film, for this story. And yeah, that gra- that graveyard scene, just one of the many things that Packer must do on his quest for his comic um, is go out to the graveyard and dig something up that happens to be with a corpse. Um, and of course, his BFF is there with him, helping him. Um, you know, it's not just the women that have that have BFFs that stick with them. This is a, a really great example of a guy who's got a best friend who isn't in junior high or high school and is still and still at this stage in their lives will go to whatever length he needs. Um, and that's an that's an interesting character aspect that you have, Ray, uh, because normally by the time you know, guys get in their 20s or 30s. You know, they, they do start drifting away and they start, the women become important. The coupling becomes important. But as crazy as Packer's request is, Chaz, is, he's going to do it. He's going to help him. And, of course, his girlfriend isn't happy or ex or sometime girlfriend. Yeah, they're, they're kind of separated, but they're not. And <laughs> she forces him to live with him, uh, her. 
So uh, there's a lot of the film has to do with those kind of relationships in your early 20s. And as uh, uh, Jennifer Gunderson said about one of the guys, he's an idiot. And he is. But that's, that's what they go through at that age. But Chaz, played by David uh, Trevino, uh, David's an amazing actor with great, great, great comedic timing. And he just nailed every scene, I thought. He does have incredible comedic timing. He really does. And that was very, very impressive in his performance. He also, his facial expressiveness speaks volumes as to what he's thinking. When you have, you know, maybe ex, maybe not, wife, girlfriend, whatever, in the background on the couch yelling at him while he's Zooming or whatever with Packer. The look, on the, the faces that he gives us that we see but she can't see are just fabulous. And it really adds a, a layer of humor to, because we're sitting at home, we're watching this movie. Or, okay, you got it. I got to admit it. I was laughing and like, what the heck is wrong with Packer? Yeah. <laughs> what the heck is wrong with this guy? And... Chaz, really, he is conveying what we're feeling watching Packer and his, you know, what he, what really comes across as a harebrained idea. Um, So, I mean, you did such an excellent job building this cast. Uh, Well, that that you described is is David. Um, I, I had written it like that and wanted some expressions, but... And after, I think that was like the second or third take of that. And David had just gotten it down perfectly. And uh, even when Packers asked him on the phone, was that you or Wendy yelling? And he's trying to whisper in the phone with Wendy right over his shoulder. It it, it was Wendy. It was Wendy. Uh, David improvised that. He was fantastic. (laughs) No, that was, that whole scene was great. It was great. And, you know, and then, Kudos to your production designer, to your set dress. When we actually get into uh, further, deeper into the film in the second, third act with Apollonia and her lab, um, which it's really interesting. I love the use of color in the in the quote unquote chemicals that she has. Talk to me about the use of color in this film because some of it is very specific. Right. We went with super red and super blue in some of those bottles, obviously, to depict color schemes of certain superheroes. Um, There were other things, like at the witch's house, we used a lot of tranquil blue because Mm -hmm. uh, we actually consulted somebody who knew a lot about witchcraft, and she said that blue is needed to ward off evil spirits. And so we we tried to dip a little bit in the authenticity, but the colors were uh, very important to all this and, and, and sometimes trying to stick with those primary colors that were found in those old 60s and 70s comic books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the colors that you use feed right back into the the colors we see on the covers of Atomic Fiction. Yes. And I really like that continuity that you developed from a visual standpoint. You know, what was the most challenging aspect of filming Storage Locker. Without giving away too much. Yes, we're not going to give it are, away. <laughs> with, with that, there is a scene 
in the subterranean basement where there are these plexiglass boxes. And it was not always easy to build those and get them to hold. Uh, we had to put people in those uh, for certain reasons. So it's a storage locker, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, just to get that down and the lighting right on that, so it looked as spooky as it did. I, I, I couldn't have been happier. And our main gaffer, uh, Mike, uh, just told me he was so happy about that. He said, I, you know, when you told me we were going to do this, I didn't think it was going to work. And I, I just can't believe how good it worked. No, I mean, it looks spectacular. The room itself looks great because, and this is where the lighting is so key, particularly in that scene, because there are so many shadows. There's negative space that's created. And your cinematographer, Anton uh, Savenko, really picks up on that negative space. So it it really comes into play in that scene and it it really creates almost a spine tingling effect because we don't know what's in the shadows and as we start to see what's unfolding within these plexiglass lockers within the locker um you get really creeped out and you don't know what's going to come out of the shadows at you so that whole thing was very 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 well you know well done and constructed from a visual standpoint. I really fell in love with that. Oh, thank you so much. What a great team we had. No, it really, and I, uh, that scene, it truly is probably my favorite in the film because this is where every, you really mesh the worlds at that point. Mesh the genres and the worlds and... You know, this comes in after we've seen the richness and the the richness of the Fisk family, uh, the golden umbers of dark woods, and then, you know, the darkness. It's a lovely parallel that brings in the darkness of what's actually going on with this secret collector society and the sisters. Um, so you really play that so well, Ray. Oh, thank you, Debbie. I appreciate it. Uh, there was a part of the film, just to mention real quickly, uh, where they're at the party in the mansion, and Bobby Grace points out Jennifer, who's kind of crazy, and <laughs> we, we see a quick shot of Jennifer pointing up at the ceiling. That is actually Jennifer Joseph, and the joke is that Jennifer, crazy Jennifer, believes that she is the logo for Columbia Pictures, and that actually is the Jennifer Joseph who at age 28 was the model for the Columbia Pictures logo. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's, oh, that's, that's real inside baseball there, Ray. That's, I mean, that's fantastic. Now, there's another element of this film that, that comes into play here. Talk to me about your score, about working with your composer. I think it's Dan Dombrowski, you know, Talk to me about what you were looking for musically, because this isn't, it's not a horror score, it's not a superhero score, it really, it's an undercurrent, an ebb and flow with, that's really in tune with Packer. So I'm curious what you were looking for musically to buttress this whole thing. I really kind of left a lot of that 
and uh, Dan and Matt Bucati was the the guy that that also did most of the composing uh, in, in, in the team. It's Mansa Pro's Pro, and we would talk about scenes that we just really needed uh, the music in there. Uh, I thought he did an absolutely brilliant job of creating the tension, things like that, adding in certain sound effects. We had a great sound team, but um, we really wanted this to kind of be the music supporting what we were seeing as opposed to being overpowering. I, I just saw Oppenheimer last night, great film. And uh, boy, some of the music scores are, are fantastic. They, they, they really build that. But I, I just felt like with our film, we, we needed a little bit more subtlety in mm-hmm. the music because everything, you really didn't know what was around the corner. Right. Absolutely. And that's one of the good things about a score, especially with a smaller film like this. It just it just buttress it buttresses it a little, and it flows. It's undercurrent, so it's not overpowering. It's not leading you somewhere. You're letting your performances and the story lead, and then the music is following. And it works really well for you with Storage Locker. Well, thank you. That's a great observation on your part. Thank you. You know what is it? Your third feature, you know, obviously, you always learn something along the way. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in making Storage Locker and telling this story that you can now take forward into your future films and maybe even a sequel to Storage Locker? Right, okay. Well, we. this is the first one that I pretty much did everything... As, as a writer, producer, director, uh, and editor, I, I, I didn't really use a partner or anything on that. Of course, I had wonderful teams I worked with that worked on this. And, and I, I really think with the COVID stress and everything else, uh, we, we you know, of course had the actor out for about four days uh, with COVID. But I, I think it took a toll on me. And so as I'm entering my next film with Mr. Danzinger of Chainsaw Thing, we're going to shoot another film this spring. And I'm not going to do it. I just need to take something off the table so I can put more attention on that. I, I really kind of got burned out at the end of this. And I didn't think that would ever happen because you get so excited doing this. And you're, you're, the, you're the person that can do the creativity. And there's nobody from Hollywood telling you no. Mm-hmm. So what a what a wonderful experience that is. But I, I think I've, I've learned that, yeah, I, I need to take off one of those hats. Maybe two? Probably, <laughs> but I think, I think it's only going to be one this time. We, we, uh, it, it helps not to have to pay somebody else to do those things. Well, yeah, and at the, at the at, you know, the low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget, indie level, that's always a tough decision as a creator. It's, yeah, I really would like more time to focus on directing, but I can't pay a producer. I can't pay an editor. I can't pay for an assistant. Um, So then you want to do it all because you want to make sure it all gets done. And then you kill yourself in the process. But, um, you know, with the editing, since you were doing the editing, were you editing as you went? Or did you wait until you had everything in the can, so to speak? I did wait. I, there was there was too much going on from day to day to, to even get back to the board at, uh, to the desktop at night. So 
I waited, and, and the good thing is as we shot, I had a pretty good idea of what we wanted and, and what was going to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. What uh, editing program did you use? Uh, Premiere. Okay. Yeah, I know. You know, it, people are divided out there. Some love Premiere, some love Avid. Um, if you have more money, I think it has been my experience that the people who have a bigger budget may go with Avid over Premiere. Uh mm-hmm. But both are are wonderful programs for editing. How long was the editing? How long was the editing process for you once you sat down to do it? I want to say it took me a couple months, and uh, many versions that I had tested with with friends and and other folks that are in the business. The toughest part was once the movie was finished, going through quality control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, you know. But, but oh. I, I, was getting, I was getting frames picked on. One twenty-fourth of a second, they were getting picked on. So it, it, it's a tough process. That, that may have been the toughest part of the whole film. But just think, that, that part is over. You made it through the festival circuit. You were extre- well-lauded on the fest circuit. And now tomorrow, everybody has the chance to see Storage Locker. It comes out tomorrow. It's incredible, isn't it? A drink, drink on truth. Oh, my gosh. Well, Ray, this has been so wonderful to have you on the show. I hope you will come back on again after you get to work on another project uh, and get we, that done. We'd love to. And, and, and I can hopefully bring Alan Danzinger on as well. And if you want ever to talk to Alan for one of your shows, let me know. I but we are that. working on this new film. It's a comedy, dark horror, or dark comedy horror. It's called The Weed Hacker Massacre. I think you'll laugh. Oh, my God. The title sounds incredible. The Weed Hacker it's, it's, Massacre. It's funny. That's it. Oh, my God. This sounds like it could be up there in one of my fave guilty pleasures for low budget, no budget, <laughs> micro budget of, you know, Sharkula, uh, you know, there you go. a Dracula shark, um, right. which if you You're haven't seen. Now. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, this, the Weed Hacker Massacre, this could be one of them. Ray. I think it could be. An absolute joy. I can't wait till we talk again. And I will be watching Storage Locker again come tomorrow. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Debbie. You're great. I love it. Great questions and love being on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much, Ray. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Ray Spivey talking about storage locker. And yes, for everybody out there who has storage lockers, I think you're going to relate to a big part of this. And if you're comic book collectors, you're definitely going to relate. But now we're going to switch gears. And I am... So excited to welcome this fine filmmaker to the show, Max Gold. Are you there, Max? Hello, hello, I'm here. Hello, hello, Belle. What a hauntingly beautiful film. Thank you. I love this reimagination of the Beauty and the Beast story. Thank you very much. I mean, number one, you filmed in Iceland, so (laughs) we get a totally different vibe than from other iterations of the story. This is definitely not 
Disney-fied. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is even, there was a beautiful French version uh, of yeah. Beauty and the Beast done a couple a few years ago that is so vibrant and opulent that I am madly in love with. But here, it's sparse. We really focus on the characters and the motivations of the characters. It's, mm-hmm. it's very stripped down. And you give it this very haunting and grounded feel. The realism that we get with the way you tell Belle is it's outstanding from the point of being human, being sympathetic, being empathetic, and seeing people do things that gross you out. Um, so talk to me about where the idea came from for you to tell this story of Belle. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for that read on it. Um, I, I think that that's a very valid description of how we approached making the film and telling the story in general, that you kind of nailed it. We stayed within Belle's perspective as much as possible and just tried to um, be as true to what she was feeling. And um, even if those feelings were contradictory mm-hmm. to one another um, and just let that unfold, that's part one. And part two was we did that across the Icelandic landscape. Um, and that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, Iceland, if you've ever been, the moment you step off the plane, it, it is stunningly beautiful, but it's stunningly beautiful in a way that um, is, it's empty. Um, mm-hmm. There's sounds of wind and air and there aren't a lot of wild animals, um, and there's a very primal, uh, volcanic, un- untouched, unspoiled, natural look to the landscape. And the moment you arrive there, it just kind of seeps into you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that subjectivity that we were approaching Bell's story with uh, married very well with that experience of being in Iceland and how we portrayed that. Mm-hmm. visually from her eyes so so it um we really tried to harness that and go as deep into that as we possibly could and that the combination of those two things is really what yielded um this take on the classic fairy tale what made you want to tell this to do a reimagination of beauty and the beast you know it's a daunting task for yeah, anybody yeah. considering the popularity of the live of Disney's two versions uh and the iconography of the whole thing so i'm curious what possessed you to want to tackle this one yeah that's a great question and i i studied fairy tales for years and specifically the um psychoanalytic underpinnings of fairy tales and how they may or may not, they could be read as representations of psychic change mm-hmm. in, in a person. Um, specifically, that would mean in this example, like Belle isn't just Belle. Belle is the beast. Belle is her father and Belle is the witch. And they're all elements of herself that are interacting as she goes through this period of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 
Beauty and the Beast itself, um, I love that Jean Cocteau film that you, you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that was a big inspiration. But equally, there are so many tellings of this uh, myth, basically, that aren't called Beauty and the Beast. Um, there's a Scandinavian one from hundreds and hundreds of years ago called East of the Sun, West of the Moon, where the beast is a polar bear. Um, there's the Eros and Psyche myth, which is kind of a variation of that in Greek mythology. Um, and it's really just the, the pattern of the myth is always about the bell or the Psyche character um, finding where she ends and where the person she's in love with begins. Yeah. And that's the theme that I'm obsessed with. Um, I think that's something that, having been in love before, uh, you you can you don't want to hold yourself back from going too deep. But sometimes, if you do go too far, you lose where your boundaries of self are, and vice versa. You don't want to, um, like the beast, hide yourself in a cave and not experience intimacy and love. And so, I think the dynamic between the two of them just always captivated me and that's what draw, drew me to this fairy tale and uh, and i love the growth of bell and the and her journey that we go on and what you also do with that journey you marry her journey to the landscapes that you're shooting in um we have a very plain empty landscape when she's with her father at their mm-hmm. house and doing very rote things. But, of course, he doesn't even want to let her. She wants to patch the roof because of the roof leaks. And it's like, no, you can't do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, she stomps her feet a bit, and she wants to do it. But, no, he's not going to let her do it. So you really get that angst in this emptiness. And it's like her life is empty. And we, that's, that's conveyed in the visuals you have at that point when she starts going to search for this magic rose, which is her journey. And it really is, the rose is actually her in many respects. Um, We start seeing more of Iceland, more of the countryside. Then when she meets up with the beast, that's when we start to see the water, the ocean, um, And, of course, as they get to know each other, then we're in the forest where everything is a new experience for Belle and for discoveries of, okay, what makes the beast be a beast? Does he become a beast by fire, by water, by pain, by frigid cold? But it's a much more beautiful world. There's so much to look at. And the world expands as Belle's perspective and of self expands. And I just love how you married that together. I love that read. That's such a great read on, on how we approached um, framing the story visually. Um, there's this Icelandic painter called Carval. I completely Americanized the pronunciation, so I apologize to anyone who speaks Icelandic, but his paintings are technically landscape paintings, but they're um, almost more cubist. They don't they don't have a consistent sense of perspective. And if you look closely, you find 
mythical creatures embedded in the moss and elves mm. and the colors are outrageous and it um the whole ex- experience of looking at a carval painting is the entire landscape comes alive and starts telling you a narrative in a way um and those paintings very much informed our approach to using the the sense of place in the way that you're describing for mm. the way Bell's journey unfolded. Um, it the the landscape was, as you said, supposed to just be Bell's experience itself. And as she goes deeper, um, scary things emerge. The whole um, end sequence with confronting the witch we shot in a southern region of Iceland that's completely just volcanic rock um, for that starkness and that that red clay look so yeah we were we tried to get around as much as we possibly could yeah the the visual metaphor uh, for the emotional journey is just it is spectacular spectacular Max that just stood out to me from the very beginning of the film and the deeper I got into the film and, and the deeper the story went, the more that relationship, that metaphor stood out to me. And I love that kind of depth and thought when a filmmaker puts that into a film. And you definitely did that here. Well, thank, thanks for noticing. You know, and of course, talk to me about the lighting. So much of this is exteriors with natural light in the cave where the beast lives, the mm-hmm. golden glow of the fire. And of course your use of negative space, your cinematographer, Nico Navia, um, the negative space is beautifully, beautifully utilized inside the cave and set with the glow of golden glow of fire or mm-hmm. the mirror. The beast has his magic mirror. You kept that. <laughs> All you Beauty and the Beast fans, yes, the Beast has his magic mirror. Show me Belle. Um, And it's gold. So you carry through with that that golden tone that really, I think, speaks to the humanity within the Beast. But then he's shrouded in this darkness of all of this negative space in the cave. It's so beautifully shot. So beautifully shot, Max. Yeah, I mean, um, it is it is beautifully shot. Nico did a beautiful job, and I think the um, the location that cave was one where um, the beast, the actor that plays Beast Ingi, found found this place. A friend of his has access to it under underneath their farm, and it's um it's called Hetlar Caves. And Hedlar means cave, so it's called Cave Caves. And the caves were um, originally hideouts for the Gaelic monks um, hiding out from the Vikings in wow. the year 800. And there's still essentially graffiti from the year 800, year 900 within those caves that are scratched onto the walls. And when we found that cave, it really just was the beast. We thought, this is where he should be existing, um, they have a life of their own. And then the technical challenge became for Nico, how, <laughs> how do we light? Um, and that torch that Bell carries around everywhere became 
our, our greatest tool. Um, but that came with many technical challenges as well and safety issues. Um, so that simplicity, uh, he was just so masterful in executing everything behind what comes off as, yeah, it's very simple negative space and um, single light source at times, maybe two. But, um, yeah, he was extremely thoughtful in that. And, of course, talk to me about working with Nico in designing the visual tonal bandwidth and making use of the natural light that Iceland affords you. Because I love the weight of the air that he captures. Um, it's almost like you can see a dampness or a dew within the, hanging in the air itself. And I'm, I was very drawn to that. And it looks wonderful. So I'm curious about your discussions with Nico in developing, you know, that visual tonal bandwidth and utilizing that light. I love how you describe that about the air. Um, I totally know what you're talking about. I never use those words myself, but uh, I, I would attribute it to a couple of things. The first was a realization, uh, I think oh, maybe two weeks before we both went to Iceland and I gave him a call and I said, hey, um, you know, we were working with this extremely skeleton crew and we were just mm -hmm. at that time both uh, having long conversations about how we could make the visual approach extremely distinctive to this mm -hmm. film while not, um, how do I say it, while, while being elegant in our allocation of the very few resources. Yes. So, of course, we wanted to make it look visually stunning, but it was more about kind of a judo approach and looking at, hey, what do we have to work with? And I realized, well, Iceland in the summertime is is light for the whole time. Um, even when it is nighttime, it just is kind of like someone turned a dimmer down mm -hmm. um, on the sun. And and that quality of light was what I pitched to him. It's like, hey, what if we were totally nuts for the couple months we were there and we um, shot only technically at night? Um, and he loved it. And then reconciling that with Lauren, our line producer, and the rest of the crew, and then, frankly, myself um, going insane during pre-production <laughs> from switching our hours, it was a whole other story. But it really did set the groundwork for that quality of light that you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think every step of the way, our, our camera team, um, our gaffer, our aerial cinematographer and then on the other end paul our colorist followed through on um, nico's vision for that that quality of light and really giving it that texture so those were some of the key choices um i think the the one other thing i would say is the the lenses we used are actually still camera lenses that we added to the wow. camera and we adapted and i think it gave it um a certain texture that's also very distinctive so that's mm -hmm. probably how that all came together i because that the entire overall look of that and that's what gives it this very haunting yet very ethereal uh mm -hmm. sensibility and without giving anything away in the third act we really see that come together mm -hmm. um in i mean just it's very unexpected but yeah. it's also very beautiful to look at it's strange but it's very <laughs> beautiful 
to look at. Um, I notice what you also do is you shy away from close-ups and extreme close-ups. You really stick to wide shots or, you know, like a mid-mid-two shot. What was your thinking behind really avoiding the, the ECUs or the close-ups? You have some, but you don't go overboard with it. So I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, the framing that you chose. Sure. I mean, I, yeah, I, we, we went in with several visual references um, that probably informed those choices. But in the bigger picture, I think by focusing on Bell's subjectivity of everything, it was like that, that approach that you're describing just kind of worked itself out. So there were times where we, I'm thinking of a couple moments where we pushed in almost to Bell's eyes filling mm-hmm. the whole frame, but they were in order to underline the power of those moments, right. we kept away from that framing for the rest of the movie. Um, and I don't want to spoil anything, but right. there's one in particular where Bell is, we're watching her make a very, very key choice for her own life, finally for her own, uh, her own self-preservation. And in so doing, we push from, I think, something like a medium wide all the way into to her eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we had had extreme close-ups peppered throughout the rest of the movie, that moment wouldn't have been as impactful. Yeah. Um, so I, that, that's probably how I'd speak to it. The other part of it is just we wanted to show off where we were. <laughs> that's why we were there. And it was so we, we didn't want to deprive people of that. Um, and uh, I think that informed the choice, too. Ah, I have to tell you, watching Belle ride her horse and go from <laughs> the flatland and going deeper, and we see the, the volcanic, the rocks, I mean, and into the forest. That is just, it's almost as beautiful, if not as beautiful, as watching herds of stallions through the American West. Just <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely stunning. And here again, it's the metaphor, the freedom, the fleeing, fleeing to a future, perhaps. Um, that really, really comes through very strongly. Now, the editing is very deliberately paced. Talk to me about working with your editor, with Patrick Lawrence, and the challenges of the edit for Bell. Totally. I mean, I think I think deliberate is code for slow sometimes, and at least I've noticed that. Um, Patrick edits for a big screen. We always intended for this film to be seen and heard on the big screen. And one of, I've, I've worked with him on so many projects before. And one of the first things he taught me was, Hey, in the studio right now, it feels like this is moving a little slow, but when you see this in a theater, everyone's eyes are going to be moving around. They're going to be looking at Mm -hmm. this this facial expression. They're going to be looking at the little hand gesture which, by the way, speaks to the level of detail and precision that Patrick perceives. Right. Um, and I was fully behind that. And I think that the experience we all had seeing it for the first time in theaters at Cinequest and then um, subsequently at Popcorn Frights and some of the other festivals, um, especially hearing it, too, it, it just really uh, paid off for me. So um, there's that piece. But it's funny you were mentioning the bell horseback riding scene, too, because the so Patrick was, we, we were looking to temp um, 
that sequence to music. And we were finding all of these really, um, I don't know, kind of like Baroque, nice scores that were just lovely horseback riding music. And um, Matt Ornstein, the composer, and I are both from Minneapolis, and we're all big fans of Prince. And we, we tried dropping in Little Red Corvette as temp and playing out that, having Patrick cut it to that sequence. And it was really good. And of course, we couldn't use anything derivative of anything ever by Prince, right. as big a fan as we all were. But when we kind of crystallized that as a trio, we were like, what about this speaks to Belle's feelings right now? And we were thinking, well, if she lived on a farm in Kansas, she would totally be blasting Little Red Corvette, driving, driving away from her dad's farm, getting really, really psyched to, you know, go off on her own. And um, we took that music inspiration and we, Matt invented a new score around it that was within the, the tone of the um, rest of the score. But yeah, you know, like that, that's, that's another thing about the edit, editing with Patrick that I love so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, when I use the word deliberate, it, it means deliberate, thoughtful, purposeful, um, not slow. If it's slow, yeah. I'll just say it's slow. <laughs> why is it three hours long and why does it drag? So I'm looking at my watch and after 10 minutes and it feels like an hour. Um, yeah. That is not what you have here at all. Um, well, and I'm glad you brought up Matt Ornstein and that segment of the score. Because the score overall, it's not a typical score. Mm -mm. It's no. not what you would expect. So talk to me about working with Matt. And, you know, what were you looking for musically for the film as a whole? Part of it was that we started out thinking, hey, did we, we, we think we just made, what we know we made was a character piece about Belle, but what, what is the tone? It became a question of tone. And, yeah. and Matt started, Patrick and I threw him a bunch of temp music that was from straight horror movies. Um, so it was a lot of pure tension, pure uh, sort of jump scare feelings. And we laid it in and it just didn't feel like our movie. Um, and so we did a really lengthy explore that either fortunately or unfortunately coincided with um, the, the lockdown from the COVID-19 pandemic. So the three of us had a lot of time on our hands to be trying out um, tons of different tonal approaches. And finally, we land on some, landed on something that was kind of more of a, more than a sum of its parts. It was a little bit of horror, but more about the tension in the horror. And it was a little bit of um, uh, voices kind of animating from the land, but with more of an eerie tone than something, say, like Lord of the Rings, which would be more orchestral. And frankly, Matt just made it all his own. I don't I don't know what other word to call it. He's just so extremely talented. So he just kind of pumped it all through his machine of his brain and... Um, <laughs> created something very original so that's it's my best description it's not very articulate but that was my experience of watching i mean create i love the score for this film because it is very unique as the film itself is very unique um but hand in hand with what matt has written composed is also the instrumentation yeah that is real it really sounds native 
sounds like interesting. They're yeah. you, know, uh, you know woodwinds, um, you know things natural element uh, instruments. I really like the instrumentation for this score. Thank you. So do I. He um, he was brilliant with that because it, it started even in production. He came out and was recording Iceland sounds. He would just climb to the top of waterfalls while we were shooting and we'd yell at him to get out of the way of the camera and he'd be recording sounds of the water, sounds of the wind. Surprisingly, there aren't a lot of sounds in Iceland. It's very empty, but then the question for him became, what does that emptiness sound like? Mm -hmm. And what's between the wind here and and why? Um, And he brought a lot of that texture back in and then, yeah, the voices, uh, we, we were fortunate enough to work with real vocalists, and I think we were both really inspired by Juliana Barwick, uh, the composer, and um, the way she uses voices to um, really bring things to life. So, yeah, that, those are some of the, the influences he was using. So now that you're getting ready for the film to come out into the world tomorrow for everybody to see... You know, as you get to sit back now and reflect, what would you say was the most challenging aspect of telling this story beyond not stepping on any toe, you know, the toes or the designs of what prior filmmakers and storytellers have done with the story of Beauty and the Beast? What was the most challenging aspect of bringing this to life? You know, I think back on the process and uh, production of any film, but especially a a small one, um, it it forces a certain regimentation and process to be efficient. You have to, you only have so much time, you only have so much money, and there's always then a pressure to not take risks, to not waste time. And... um, me and the entire team were so behind the vision, the same unified vision for this movie of really trying a lot of big risks creatively. And um, I'm really grateful that we were. I think the biggest challenge was, uh, or phrased differently, if, if I had a do-over, I, w- I want to take even more risks with it. You know, like I think mm-hmm. back on the dreamscape of a place we were in and um, there are certain energies that come from that place and from that land into the unconscious. And I, 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 uh, I was always trying to be open to those, even if they didn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Um, and that's something that I want. To, it's a sense that I want to continue to develop for the rest of my life and, and hone. So that's something that I think about quite a bit, especially in relation to Iceland, um, where the movie, you know, being shot in like Southern California Maybe not the same. <laughs> no, out, no, I don't think so. <laughs> now, was this your first time shooting in Iceland? It was my first time shooting a feature film in Iceland. Um, uh, the, the actors and a couple other crew members and I had gone and shot a short film proof of concept there during the winter a few years prior to just give it a try and Dur- see what came out. Uh, dur- um, during the winter? Yeah. You shot during, during the, winter. the winter. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have funding for that proof of concept, so we figured no one was going there during the winter, and um, it it was amazing. Uh, it was 
a lot of a lot of creativity was born out of that limitation, and I think a lot of that carried through into the final film. Well, and I do, I have to ask you, what made Andrea the perfect person to play Belle? Because she is perfect. It's so funny you describe her that way because my experience, I cast so many people for that role. Um, when we were auditioning, we, I mean, for literally years, um, Americans, Icelanders, I did a whole casting session in Reykjavik. And I remember when her tape came in, it was two hours before I was supposed to leave for the airport back to the U.S. It was on one of the first scouting trips I took. And I watched it and I was like, oh, she's she's interesting. Like, I've never really seen someone like this. And I emailed her and was like, hey, I'm going to the airport, but could you grab a coffee before I go? And we sat down and I just we talked about the project. And I got back to California and I was kind of thinking about it. Um, and I was like, no one else that I've seen, hundreds of people make sense for this, except for this person. And I didn't see it so much as she's perfect for the role. I was like, no one else really can play this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for years, we both were developing the project and any number of things could have gone wrong or fallen apart. And they just didn't. Um, and the same exact thing with Ingi, who plays the Beast. We, mm-hmm. But with the three of us just kind of stuck together, communicated, worked on other projects. And when it came time to shoot this, we were all three like, yeah, let's go. Um, so it just really felt uh, like there would have been no one else. Yeah, I, she's absolutely perfect with the defiance, with the confidence, and also the insecurity that she has. Um, mm-hmm. And in her toe-to-toe confrontations with Ingi as the Beast, yeah. um, we've never had, we have never seen a bell like that before. Um, you know, Disney tried to give, tried to give their bell, you know, some a bit of comeuppance, but no, we have not had the self-assuredness that Andrea brings to this bell in going in these toe-to-toe scenes opposite Ingi to the point that he mm-hmm. even, you know, backs down and is kind of like, whoa. <laughs> it, you know, you can almost hear his mind going, I'm supposed to be this scary, horrible thing. She's not scared. Yeah. Um, and I love that. But their chemistry is so wonderful together that you really feel the hesitancy the insecurity in in both of them Mm -hmm. and also watching their individual selves grow while they grow together Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's it really i can't imagine any other two people playing those roles except for these two i that's that's i'm so glad that came through i feel the same way yeah oh Max, this has been an absolute delight getting to speak with you about Bell. Everybody can see it now tomorrow. It's on all digital platforms tomorrow. Um, are you working on an, another project now? I am. I'm working on a couple right now. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, well, well. I will have to be on the lookout for them. Absolutely. Uh, Anything that is like in production phase that would, we might see next year? Next year is a little fast. Uh, I mean, 
we we'd have to get to work pretty quickly. But um, yeah, I have these two finished scripts that um, one of them does shoot back in my hometown of Minneapolis, and it's a little smaller, so I'm I'm interested in that one. And another one's the exact opposite, and it's, um, <laughs> it would be in Hawaii, and it's pretty it's it's bigger. Um, oh. So yeah, either way, it sounds like fun. Iceland, Minneapolis, Hawaii—you're just a globetrotter, a globetrotter, globetrotter. Oh. Thank you, thank you so much for talking to me about the film. It's really nice to speak to someone who um, gave it so much attention, and I think uh, I, I really appreciate it. Oh, Max, my pleasure. I will definitely be watching it again, and hopefully, you will come back on the show again to talk about other projects. I'd love to. Oh, Max, thank you so, so much. And have a wonderful release day tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye, Max. Talk to you soon. Bye. And that was Max Gold, writer-director of Bell. Two wonderful filmmakers, Ray Spivey, Max Gold, Storage Locker and Bell, available tomorrow on digital. Everybody can see both films. And I recommend them. They're both something different than what you're used to, especially Belle. It is a totally new take on Beauty and the Beast, and I think you'll like it. All right, that is all the time we have today. Yes, we ran late again. Uh, We'll be back next week. We've got more live guests next week. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 